then you meet some guy at, at their office and um, or they take you out to you know wine and dine you at a at a country club. Often you're you're buying the uh, uh, the relationship with this person and like the experiences that they they offer you more than more than the financial advice as it turns out. Welcome back everyone to the Mind Gravity Podcast. We have a very special guest today on our show. Well, the proposition is as you build your life career, and family. The stress of managing your finances can strain your focus and create anxiety. Very true. It can pull you away from what matters most. It doesn't have to be that way. So my guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Farther Finance, Taylor Matthews. Through Farther, Taylor is building the right financial tools specific to your financial needs. Think of it as your own personal family office so that you can focus your time and attention on living your life and doing the things that you love. On this episode, we will cover Taylor's journey up until farther and what unique challenges he has faced since seeding farther. So without further ado, let's dive straight into the conversation. Let's go. Welcome to the Mind Gravity Podcast, Taylor. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I think We've already touched base early on, just you talking about um, your, your startup, Father, which is an investment platform and advisory platform for uh, the up and coming. Uh, but before we dive deep into what the startup is, we'd love to hear a bit more about your background and what got you started on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, give you a sense of my, my background in a nutshell. So uh, I started off. Um, I, so I was a philosophy major uh, out of college, and like all good philosophy majors, I went straight into investment banking. Uh, so I did that for um, for a couple years. Tremendous experience, just like kind of like piling, you know, a number of years of of experience into just a couple. Um, to till the financial crisis claimed that bank, uh, then went on to management consulting. So it's uh, internal at Fidelity Investments for a while, doing strategy consulting there. Uh, prior to business school. In business school, I uh, started a, another company called Smart, uh, which is a, a social enterprise geared towards um, uh, distribution of life-improving products. So think like solar lanterns, water filters, cook stoves, agricultural tools, things like that that are designed for the bottom of the pyramid, but that don't, uh, don't always get to them. Um, India wasn't a very good long-term option for me with my, uh, my wife with her career back in the States. So used management consulting as kind of a, a stepping stone back. And then uh, the last five years or so, I've been in the fintech community. Uh, most recently at Forasol prior to Farther. Forasol is a 401k advisory business. Um, and I joined just after their Series A there, ended up leading their, their client relationship management function and uh, to a large extent their partnerships. And um, I just a tremendous experience, gave me a huge purview over um, you know, about 25,000 accounts by the end, of, uh, by the time that I left, um, and uh, at about a billion dollars that uh, that was under management there. And, um, you know, just, again, tremendous purview over what was working for folks and what wasn't in the personal finance space. I, I really used that, um, that experience, that knowledge to kind of, um, uh, as a stepping stone to uh, start farther. And um, farther was really born out of the, uh, what I saw wasn't working. 
So if you, if you really think about like, what, uh, what does the personal finance landscape look like? There are lots of really great fintech uh, options that have been kind of up and coming, like are the, the, in launched in the last like five or five or 10 years. Things like Acorns and Digit and Tally and, and uh, you know, Stash and those sorts of things on the, you know, getting started in. Um, Betterment and Wealthfront kind of in the, in the middle. And then a little bit further, uh, further on, if you look at how uh, individuals tend to progress in their savings journeys, most will, especially those that have accumulated assets uh, and that are nearing retirement, almost uh, uh, most people will end up with a financial advisor. And um, it seemed a little odd that there that the financial advisory landscape required minimums that were, you know, at least a million dollars and often up to ten million dollars, especially once you get into the private banking realm. Um, which precluded a lot of folks from, you know, really getting high quality financial advice when they were going through some of the most complex uh, issues that they that they would come up against, especially in their late 30s, early 40s, when you're getting married, having kids, uh, you know, thinking about school and college, and also trying to balance uh, retirement and, of course, your career and your family all at once. So this was very much built for for that problem that uh, that I didn't see a solution for myself. Very fascinating. So you've been, you've had quite a non-linear path, not just in the U.S. You've had some experience in India, all within financial services, as you mentioned, right? Largely, uh, I, I would say uh, SMART is definitely the the biggest deviation from financial services for sure. Distribution, um, you know, very much like a traditional wholesale business. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of the the work that I did as a management consultant, I uh, either touched financial services or tech. Uh, and so I've definitely been at the intersection of those for most of my career. Very fascinating. So, and you touched briefly about getting the right financial advice and, you know, the upper brackets and limits in terms of who can invest and who can get that kind of uh, sound financial advice. Was there some issue that you saw you had personally as well while you were just, you know, starting off in your career and you were thinking about investments and savings and the entire plethora of things that that's that's folks on to us <laughs> yeah well so so i've always been a geek about this sort of thing right uh, and like I, I i'll share an anecdote my um when i was in college uh my i would take a vacation with my parents every summer um you, you know we usually go somewhere in this particular summer we went for for a cruise i think between my junior and senior year and um, while everybody else was at the pool reading like, you know, some goofy romance novel or maybe the latest Harry Potter book, uh, I was there with, um, you know, the intelligent investor. And, and like, you know, so I've, I've definitely been a geek about personal finance for a long time. And to a large extent, I, I, I was under the impression that I could do it for the most part myself. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of how I had approached personal finance, um, you know, up until that point is I, I kind of knew what to do. Right. And, um, you know, it, it was uh, between my jobs and my, my interests. I was pretty familiar with investing. I felt comfortable with it. But what I found, especially once I, especially post business school um, and post getting married was there, there was a lot of things that I knew that I was supposed to do that I wasn't doing, uh, whether that was rebalancing my portfolio or you know maintaining the asset allocation that I wanted, in uh, um, doing that on a regular basis, taking full advantage of tax advantage accounts. Um, that's hard to do, especially if you have you know a, a job that you're working you know 50, 60 hours a week or a family that you're trying to build, uh, let alone having a social life on top of it. It's just not something that you want to do every weekend. 
so I, uh, as much as this was born out of this gap that I, I saw in the broader market, it was also meant to solve a personal problem for me, which was, you know, how can I optimize my, my own financial, uh, my own financial life? So, um, farther is very much a combination of, you know, taking the, ex the, the kind of, um, white glove experience that you want to, uh, that works really well in the, um, in the financial advisory space for, for those that are maybe less familiar with, um, or, or, you know, just want to hand it off to somebody who will professionally manage your money, but also using technology to automate all the things that can be automated that even an individual financial advisor would have a, a huge challenge with, especially doing it across a number of accounts, which is, you know, Mac, uh, you know, automatically rebalancing every, every day, uh, making sure that your, uh, it, you know, any new dollar that's coming in is being stretched to the, to the greatest extent possible, things like that. Um, and it doesn't hurt to like get, a, get access to things that retail investors generally don't have access to and, and all that good stuff too. But, uh, but honestly, it really was, uh, born out of this experience that I had trying to manage my money and, you know, not doing as well as I thought I could. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I've faced similar issues when I was just starting to think about money investments, right? And one of the common themes that I see is a lot of companies try to tackle financial education and try to provide that to its end users and customers and retail investors. But financial education at scale is very hard to do, right? Unless you have that inherent drive like yourself, it's, it's hard to tell someone how they should be managing their money. Right. That's right. And, and there's this education component, which is, it's very frustrating that personal finance isn't taught in, in school, right? Like it, this is so foundational to a successful life that you would think that it's uh, it would be a, a huge component of, you know, a normal high school education. Um, but, but it's not. So there is that education side, but even for folks that are quite savvy, mm -hmm. there's the execution side, which is, which is also its own challenge just because it, it takes time and effort and you know so what we've what we're trying to do is to um provide extra leverage on that uh on that time and effort side to do the research for you and make sure that you're you know not just getting the best out of the investing side which is a, a big component right. but all the other personal financial products that uh you know that you're probably going to run into whether that's you know insurance or loan refinancing or you know mortgages and all, you know, kind of everything this is why we we generally uh, employed certified fi uh, financial professionals so like uh, cfps as opposed financial planners as opposed to um um, you know, just uh, somebody who's going to do the investment management for you, which is maybe a little bit, it's helpful, but it's not, not enough, I think. Got it. Got it. And, and obviously the last decade has seen a boom in unbundling of your traditional financial services as we know, right? So you touched earlier around the names like Acorns, we have Betterment, Wealthfront. They're all trying to provide the advisory services to people who were previously missed out because of, of course, that upper limit that was being set by uh, financial institutions. Um, an environment where everything is getting unbundled and uh, and then this is going to dive into what father father is and how it kind of differentiates itself. We'd love to hear a bit more like what is that value proposition that you're offering to your end users when you compare yourself with the better men's or the well friends of the world? And why is that useful? Um, would, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so like, I think that's an excellent observation is that uh, if you look back, let's, let's just like look back in history for, for a little, little bit, you know, in, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, that was 
pretty much the the first opportunity that uh, individuals had to, um, you know, or at least wealthier individuals had to access markets and invest in really diversified manner. Uh, mutual funds were, were the primary driver for that trend. Um, as you progressed a little bit further, uh, you had discount brokers that ended up uh, opening up. So that further democratized uh, democratized finance in the, the 80s and 90s. Um, you had the online broker trend that, uh, you know, that started in the um, early 2000s. And, and now you have just a plethora of all sorts of different products. Basically, anything that you want to invest in, you probably can or can get some sort of exposure to. Uh, but alongside that, you know, huge democratization of financial products is this overwhelming sense of like, what do I do? There's so much out there. Like, how do you actually build the right portfolio and which product do you want to use? And um, so as, as helpful as all of these do-it-yourself solutions are, I think that I think there's still for folks who are not as uh, are, are not as um, keen to spend their weekends trying to research everything and, and find the right solution for themselves, there's still an opportunity to help them as well. Uh, and I would say that the, you know, the sheer scope of, uh, of options available has complicated the, the issue a little bit. Um, that's where an, a, actual financial advice can come in handy. Uh, and of course, that's you know, advice is becoming more and more challenging to get as uh, institutions have been creeping up their their minimums, which is which is quite challenging. So, if you're um, as an individual investor who's like super excited to dig into this and um, uh, and spend the time and spend the research, th this is the best that it's ever been. On the other hand, if you're not interested in that and want to spend your weekends with your family, like that's a, that's a huge challenge. And that's where a little extra help can come in handy. Yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating uh, point as well, right? Because what I see now is there's too many of the financial products that are out there trying to offer or trying to differentiate themselves tiny bit one from the other. And they're all focusing on putting your money on autopilot so to speak, right? You, you, you connect and forget. Uh, same has happened with acorns and everything else. Like, um, so from what I understand and what, uh, what I hear you saying is, do you, is there still a need for sort of a human trust advisor to be there in the back end to help an individual s solve their financial needs, even though we have so many products out there? I, I think so. You, you hit the nail on the head. I think as an individual, you just want you, you want finance to just work, right? Um, that's that would be ideal. Uh, and I think especially for folks with really with less comp complex financial lives, a, a robo advisor is a really great solution. Mm -hmm. uh, you 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 know basically set up one or two accounts and you maybe connect your bank account to maybe set up some uh, some sort of recurring deposit and like. Sure enough, they will manage a, a, a solid portfolio for you. It's, it's, it's a pretty good option. Um, once you start layering on the complexity, once you have kids, once you have, um, once you have a spouse, once you have to think about estate planning and, and things like that, and, and I'll be honest, this, this gets more complicated the more money you have, which is the other side of the coin. Um, that's, where, you know, that's where mistakes can start to become more costly. And that's where a little bit of uh, financial advice becomes a lot more powerful. We tend to um, you know, we tend to focus on that the the points in the in our clients' lives 
after they have kind of outgrown some of those do-it-yourself solutions that have probably been working for them pretty well up until that point. Gotcha. So I was going to ask the next question. So then who becomes your target customer? Who's father's uh, target customer? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the, the clients that we've seen really gravitate to our platform are, are those that I, I, I would say this is probably maybe 60% of our, our client base is dual income, um, professional couple, uh, probably either just, just had kids or, you know, have, have young kids, um, in, uh, intend, you know, they want to focus on their careers. They want to have time for their family. Uh, but they also, you know, are generating a reasonable amount of income and want to make sure that they're accomplishing the, the big goals that they have in their lives. Um, when, you know, once you have, uh, all of those sorts of things to balance, you know, accomplishing the you know, big goals, like sending your kids to college, like maybe buying that vacation house, like saving for retirement. Uh, if you're, if you're thinking about, uh, buying a business or, you know, funding your first commercial property, uh, uh deal, like all of these sorts of things kind of weigh on people whenever everybody's situation is a little bit unique but it's where there's a little bit of extra complexity. That's where we tend to shine. And that's where a, a solution like ours that uh, helps folks kind of uh, get their, you know, put their next dollar, their next savings dollar to its best possible use, like maximizing their, their use of um, tax advantaged accounts by, um, you know, making sure that all of the right accounts are set up in the first place by managing each particular goal uh, in a granular way so that you're, you're not just tossing everything into one account and like trying to, to figure out what the, the right strategy is. That's where, that's where somebody like farther is going to be really helpful. No, no, I think that that's brilliant. Like you can have all fun and play initially with the zero commission, you know, stocks and buying all of that and the robo advisory on, on, you know, on, on micro boosters uh, for only so long after a certain point when you're, personal life becomes complex. So does your financial life. And that's kind of seems like the message coming out. Yeah. And it's not mutually exclusive either. Like, you know, a lot of our clients still retain their Robin hood accounts and still have, you know, do, do, you know, take some active bets outside of that core portfolio, but in that core portfolio that you really want to be managing for the long run that your, you know, your family is counting on. That's where, that's where you want a more consistent strategy. That's where you want a little bit more structure. Um, and you know you can lean on us for for a little advice or at least a sounding board on some of those more active bets as well. Right. Yeah. No. Sometimes it's just that additional push that's needed to you know help you make the sound decisions. And I think that's where Father sits in really beautifully. Um, switching gear again uh, slightly. Right. So you're still in the early stages of uh, building the startup, um, and there are obviously challenges. Uh, you got a pitch. You need to get a buy-in from you know your clients um, and. So what's that experience been like, whether it be your clients or trying to raise capital, um, how easy or how hard it is, because I'm pretty sure people listening on or who are thinking on starting their own startup or go on the entrepreneurial journey, they have all of these questions, but never all the answers. So what's been your, uh, what's your experience been so far? Well, sure. So maybe I can give you a sense of, you know, what, um, maybe the founding story of, of yeah, our yeah. 
So, um, you know, the, the way that we started off, it was very much a, a recognition of a, of a problem that, you know, I experienced personally and I saw that, you know, a good number of other people were experiencing just uh, uh, with, the, um, with the vantage point that I had in my, my last role. Um, at the same time, my co-founder, he was also, uh, he, he was at Goldman um, in their uh, private wealth group, and he was seeing the, the same sorts of challenges uh, from, you know, very different vantage points. Uh, he was chasing their, um, you know, families that were, you know, call it 50, 100 million in, uh, in assets, while I was, you know, very much focused on, you know, folks who had not quite gotten there yet. Right. And, um, you know, but the but what he saw was, uh, you know, that there was an opportunity to take a lot of the, uh, to take a lot of the experience that that group had and to pull it forward by, you know, using technology to do so. So, and he's a technologist by, uh, by his background. So we had this really great recognition that like I had, uh, I identified this gap in the market. He had uh, the, uh, he saw how to bring that technology to bear on this problem and to do so in a, in a really efficient way, uh, both in terms of acquiring uh, new new clients as well as as servicing them in a in a really robust way and using data to do so. So uh, that was you know it made sense for us to to get together and we we had such nice complementary skill sets. It was um, uh, it seemed like this was a match made in heaven. And then of course took that out to to market and tried to raise some capital and. Um, and that's where we're really lucky to have some great financial backers who, uh, you know, see the vision, see this, this kind of, uh, you know, rising tide of folks who are not as happy with the options that are available to them right now, who don't want to wait for that private banking experience. Uh, so that was a, um, you, the recognition of the problem and, and the opportunity for, you know, what, I, uh, what can be a really nice business uh, was, was there. Um, we spent the time to uh, to build out the platform in a in a really nice way. Uh, launched in April, and uh, if you recall, April was it, everything was scary in April, right? It definitely was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, there was this trend in the in the especially in the venture community and like the startup community more broadly it, that uh, you know th this is just like the financial crisis in in oh seven oh eight. You were you should be terrified, hoard cash, you know, reduce all your marketing spend. And, uh, you know, so we took what was JIT uh, at first a plan to launch in a, in a bigger way um, and, uh, and scaled that back pretty substantially. Uh, but we did retain a little bit of, uh, of dry powder for just message testing. Right. And what was surprising there was that the message was resonating. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was, I think that was really when we were pretty sure that this was something that was, that was real where uh, not only was uh, uh, were our friends telling us, yeah, this is a good idea or investors telling us, yeah, we buy this, but like people we didn't know were, were responding and, uh, and that gave us the conviction to, you know, to, to really drive forward and, uh, and begin to uh, raise a, a second round of capital to kind of, um, to, to give us a little boost, especially once we launched a, um, a, a new version of the product. So that's, um, that's been our story so far, but it, it, I, I will tell you, raising capital is, is never easy. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of rejection, but, um, 
you know, but ultimately you end up with folks that are, you know, that have high conviction, that understand the problem, that spend the time to get to know the team. And that's, uh, it's been phenomenal working with those folks. I agree. I mean, oftentimes you hear founders getting disheartened because the first 10 investors did not bite <laughs> into the idea, right? Um, many times it takes the 50th or the 51st or the 100 or the 101st <laughs> investor to finally see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so I, I totally agree with you on that. You know, so when you were describing your journey, uh, I, I saw that the platform itself or the idea itself was seeded late, uh, early last year. Uh, yes. so it's been about a year and a half. Um, and no one had seen COVID uh, or, you know, it's, it's like a black swan event, um, if you could even call that. Um, and things kind of changed dramatically, right? People losing their jobs, as you were saying, um, advice was to hold on to the cash. But you sort of seen a different insight from your clients and users in general and how they are navigating this space. So people... Um, so what are some of those fascinating insights? Are people investing more? Are they saving more? What's, what's been new and why is it happening? Yeah, so I think there's a couple, uh, a couple of trends that kind of have, um, have converged at, at this time. Like at, at first, if you recall in March, there was just uh, in March and April, there's this tremendous volatility in the market, right? Like it, it, you were seeing swings in the you know general stock market of five and in, in, in five plus percent a day. Right. That's enough to get anybody a little bit nervous, either nervous that they're not doing the right thing and that's you know they want to to pull out, mm-hmm. or nervous that they're missing opportunity to you know take advantage of a uh, of an uncertain situation. Um, both of those things benefit a a financial advisor because you know w- what you're what you're really looking for there is somebody to like provide a little bit of guidance um, and on an insight on on what's happening or at least be a sounding board. Um, so I, I think financial advisors more generally were were probably uh, uh, you know they were manning the phones at that point. We we were managing uh, or uh, like manning the. Uh, uh, the phones on co- client acquisition because you know generally we didn't have too many uh, too many clients before that. But um, but it wasn't a. I, I don't think we were hit in the way that we expected to, where everybody pulled back into cash and they were they were fearful of doing anything at all. It was more like, all right, let's let's build a strategy now that makes sense, and maybe we don't put all of our cash to work right now, but let's. Uh, but I appreciate that you know, the, the, the idea that there's a value to advice. And then, um, you know, as, as you look a little bit forward from that, as things kind of calm down, if you look at it, it's really challenging for a traditionally in-person business model, especially an acquisition model, uh, to, uh, to continue in, in that world. Um, it, financial advice is, has traditionally been, you meet some guy at, at their office and, um, or they take you out to you know wine and dine you at a at a country club. Often you're you're buying the uh, uh, the relationship with this person and like the experiences that they they offer you more than more than the financial advice as it turns out. Um, but in an environment where in person meetings weren't realistic, and people still wanted financial advice, we were there. Uh, and I think. Uh, other financial advisors are certainly adapting to that business model, but uh, you know, it, it being native for us was just a tremendous boon. Um, and then, of course, you know, the the last uh, the last thing is we're 
you know, we're not an incumbent. We don't, uh, we don't have, but so many uh, clients that were, you know, that we're, we had been working with prior to that, uh, which gives us a lot of opportunities to, to go out and, and, uh, and talk to people who maybe weren't as well served by their financial advisors as they thought they were going to be before this and maybe weren't communicated to as much as they should have been during the crisis. And I, I think we've definitely benefited from, um, you, you know, uh, some folks recognition that all those promises that were made up front maybe weren't 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 acted on when the going got tough. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fascinating because there's a uh, thought that popped in my head. Like your platform essentially is a case in point that no matter how uh, automated your financial uh, you know advisory platforms could be, how zero commissions work, unless you in times like this like when things are so volatile, you need someone on the other side to comfort you and to be able to tell you what's right, what's not, what's not right. No matter how many emails or how many uh, messages you send them, it still doesn't provide that same level of comfort than hearing someone on the other side who has experience, uh, you know, providing the financial advice. Um, so, so yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating insight from your end. What's really interesting, so so Vanguard did a study uh, a couple years ago um, where they tried to uh, figure out exactly what the value of financial advisor would bring to the table. And like Vanguard, you're probably familiar with, uh, you know, pretty fee averse. They, you know, they're they're very much trying to drive down costs for for their clients. So uh, going in, the assumption would be like, oh, financial advisors maybe not worth it. They found that folks that um, had financial advisors generally outperformed those that didn't by about three percentage points of annual return a year. That's a massive amount. The reasons were not because financial advisors were better at picking stocks or doing anything like that. That's, that's not it. Uh, And there were some, you know, hygiene things like, you know, actually setting the right asset allocation up, not being overly conservative, especially when you're younger, rebalancing on a consistent basis, those sorts of things. But the bulk of it, was was the psych uh, the psychological um, and, and the coach uh, the psychological commitment commitment and the coaching that uh, advisors provide when when things got bad and you know that advice to stay invested even in in the tough times to not pull out at the bottom of the market that's what ended up driving more than more than half of that extra return. Wow. Yeah. No. I think that and that's that's absolutely right. Um, because if it just comes to our own decision-making <laughs> skills, that's why you see a lot of people just cashing out as soon as the market starts hitting the bottom. And then they again buy it at the peak. So um, at that point, a financial advisor, and spe- especially the study, um, clearly points out that uh, could be uh, avoided. And you can yeah. really make profit <laughs> out of it at the end of the day. It's a little easier to make those decisions when they're not quite as emotional. When it's you know not uh, you know not your entire life savings that uh, that you're, you're you're acting on, but you're uh, but to approach it rationally in a in a professional capacity, like you're you're just going to you don't have as much emotion that you need to deal with, which is yeah. great. No, I hundred percent agree. Um, so Taylor, tell me. A- but about so it's one thing to have an idea that yes you identified a problem and this something could be built around this right and there's another thing to actually build that product out um so what were some of the considerations when you guys were and obviously you had complementary skills so that helped a lot what were the uh you know product building considerations that you were uh thinking of early on when you were starting out 
you know, we, we made a decision quite early on on how we would kind of split the work, so to speak. Um, you know, my my co-founder, he he acts in the CTO capacity, but he's he's effectively um, running product and engineering, which is its own. You know, there's a massive amount of work there. Uh, on the other hand, I was responsible for setting up all of the um, all of kind of the the basic systems, like everything on the the sales and service side. But before we even had sales and service to have, um, just getting the like all of the the business stuff in place. So dealing with the lawyers and getting our incorporated and registering with the SEC and driving you know the compliance part and um, even doing things like setting up, uh, you know, the accounting and the uh, the HR platforms that, you know, all of that sort of stuff, it needs to get done. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of how we, we had split the work and our backgrounds were very much, um, very much led us to those fairly natural positions. I had done this before at Smart, which gave me a, you know, a huge leg up because I saw, uh, I, you know, was able to learn what uh, didn't work quite as well last time. And, um, you know, and I also knew exactly the same, the sorts of things that we would need this time around. And Brad had previously built a, a similar sort of platform uh, and knew, uh, you know, knew what he wanted to build uh, here for farther as well. So the common, again, it was finding nice complementary skill sets for, I call it the management layer. And then building out teams to to help us, um, you know, really find uh, and, and we found really extraordinary people to uh, to contribute their own talents uh, and their own insights, uh, you know, to to execute on those larger, um, you know, those larger visions or pieces of vision. Okay, yeah, no. So obviously, business is very much dependent upon clearly identifying the strengths and the weaknesses of each of those players, at least on the founding member side. And your experience definitely added a lot in terms of what you were bringing to the table. So that helped you take, you know, take off. Um, and the other point that you mentioned is around the team part, right? A lot of time, what happens is like, yes, the founding team is strong, but a lot of times, people who want to join the um, early stage startups, they don't necessarily have an insight into what it actually takes and they go in for the wild ride and see what comes out on the other end. How do you guys think about like hiring someone? What is it? Uh, what are the key ingredients for hiring a team member that you think is going to add value? Yeah. So, so from the beginning, we, we had a, uh, we, we were very purposeful about how we wanted to, to approach hiring. And we, we built a, you know, an internal rubric about, you know, what sorts of um, character traits that, that we wanted. And, uh, you know, and we both had a very, I think, similar idea of the, the type of culture that we wanted to build. Um, so the, the kind of like being purposeful, before actually taking action, I think was, uh, was really critical. And then when we, the way we approach hiring, obviously there's different skill sets that are needed for different, different jobs. But I think one of the, um, you know, or I guess two, two of the, the kind of key things that we look for are a, a commitment to excellence. And that's, that's kind of a, a proxy for grit. So we want to, we, we want to see examples in your past of how you've uh, overcome difficult situations, whether or um, in, I, I think we very much look for data rather than, um, you, you know, rather than uh, kind of ambiguous claims about what you're going to do. I want to see examples in the past of how you have actually done that already. 
for folks who have worked in startups before, it's, you know, I think there's definitely, uh, it definitely helps to have that familiarity and to, um, you know, to know that things can uh, change minute by minute. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we, we definitely haven't hired exclusively from startups either. I think for folks that are coming from uh, more, uh, from larger company backgrounds, the, you know, there's definitely opportunities to display your, you know, your own willingness and, and capability of breaking through walls and maybe challenging the status quo and, uh, and changing things, uh, even at fairly state organizations. And that's, um, I, I think that's a good proxy for somebody who is going to work, uh, work out really well, kind of in, in any, well, in the role that they're, they're looking at at a startup. And then, you know, we, we also want to hire people who, uh, who, who are contributing to, a, you know, to the team in, in more of like a creating a good culture sort of way. Uh, so people who care, people who, um, you know, who are respectful, people who are um, you know, like just fun to be around. I think that that's really important, especially when, you know, you're, you're going to be working really long days uh, at, at least at some points early on to make sure that this, uh, you know, all of the, the promise of the organization is uh, brought to fruition. Yeah, no, I love the idea of just being proactive about from the get-go about who you want to hire. It doesn't have to be all startup makes or it has to be all large corporates you bring in. It's got to be the right person for the for the job. Um, and I think that's obviously sets you up for success too because um, you're only as good as the team you surround yourself with. Um, so you clearly have done that, <laughs> done that homework on your, your end. So I love, uh, uh, love the proactiveness on that end. Um, you know... Uh, one thing I often come across is around difficulties founders and teams, especially when they're trying to scale their startup, uh, the lessons to be learned, because obviously you said uh, previously, you know, raising capital is, is hard in itself. What are some of the more, you know, nuanced challenges, say operational challenges that you face or have faced that was like, oh, this could be a break, make or break kind of a moment for you? You, you know, I, I think, um, I, I think one of the things that you're you're trying to look for is at you know th there are things that kind of work when it's maybe just you uh, or maybe just you and, and a couple others like I, I'm thinking say on the sales side um, that you know there there's uh, maybe things that work at a certain level of scale a certain amount of spend on marketing and a lot of what you're doing as you as you raise capital is proving that it works at that next level as well. Um, and in doing so, that also means, you know, probably building new systems uh, to, to make sure that you're codifying what does work. You're instilling the, um, the lessons that you've learned so far in new people who are going to take over uh, or, you know, build on what you've done so far. And that's, um, you know, that, that's a, a, I mean, that's the challenge of scaling a business more, more generally is, uh, you know, how do you take something that works and make it work at a, at a bigger scale. We're, um, you know, we're just in the process of doing that again, uh, or, or doing that, uh, especially for, for this company, really for the first time is, you know, we've taken something that seemed to work, especially for, um, for me uh, as an, as an individual, as a, as a salesperson. Um, and then, uh, we've hired, uh, I think, uh, four advisors over the course of the last um, uh, last couple months and turning it into something that works for all of them as well so that they can find their own success and 
um, and we as a company can uh, not only uh, can can level up in a in a big way. That's where we are right now. And I saw the same sort of thing at at Smart, um, just my the other company that I founded, um, where we had something that worked for uh, very different uh, situations, basically distribution centers of, uh, of, of these, these products. But we had something that worked for one distribution center, uh, and when we scaled it up to three, that worked pretty well. When we scaled it up to six, not so much. And uh, it, took a, it took a number of iterations at around the same scale uh, before, uh, before we were uh, comfortable in continuing to scale after that point. Uh, and, and literally it, it took a, a couple of years to, to really find the right model. But once we did, when we doubled again and then, or then, then, then tripled, uh, it, it, we were far more confident in what we had built, uh, in, especially after we had, um, especially in not trying to do things prematurely right. uh, before we were we were pretty sure that uh, whatever we were going to scale was going to work yeah yeah there's definitely no one size fits all uh, it's a continuous experimentation right you you learn by actually doing <laughs> and just not theorizing about it no I I, I totally agree with that um, so overall you know the dynamic of how startups function, how they raise capital, how the teams are forming around has changed given the pandemic, right? Teams are going decentralized. Um, no one knows when they're going to come back, reconvene at an office. What, what, what are your thoughts on it? Do you see that as kind of a continuous trend or is that something you and the team at Father are thinking to just go completely remote? So we've gone completely remote for sure. Uh, and we kind of benefited from starting remote. So uh, my, my co-founder, Brad, he uh, lives in New Jersey, uh, works in New York. I live in San Francisco. And uh, so from the very beginning, mm -hmm. we, we had built this company as a remote, a remote first company. Um, up until the pandemic, we, we had been concentrating a little bit more on the, the New York area. And that was, that was generally our plan was to, to build out there. Um, but right as it right as it hits, uh, you know, most everybody that was working in New York kind of scattered uh, to Chicago, to LA, to um, eventually to Charleston and, and Utah and Denver. Um, but uh, but we were already well set up, and we uh, you know for that we have processes for you know getting people familiar with uh, with their with their teammates from from afar. Uh, we try and uh, you know keep everybody up to date on on what folks are doing. So I feel like that's, it, it's actually worked out quite well for us. Um, when I look forward, I don't really th see a, um, a change to this setup mm -hmm. for, at least for us, I, I don't think we're going to do anything but remote work at least through July of next year. And then we'll kind of, we'll reevaluate once we get to that point, see where vaccines are, all that good stuff. But, um, you know, there there are definitely advantages to to working apart from each other, uh, and uh, you know, on the time that were, is most convenient to you know each coworker as an individual. Um, but there are also real advantages to working together and to, to finding those moments of um, uh, you, you know uh, those light bulb moments where you just like happen to be chatting at a desk and like you know you you take that and run with it. 
um, that's uh, that's something that I do think that we miss a little a little bit from, and we'll need to do better at finding ways to act on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, um, I've been working at a large financial institution myself, and we've been remote for the, since March, since everything just kind of shut down. And I feel the same, like a lot of those light bulb moments happen when you're around people and you're just chit-chatting, talking and you're like, aha, okay, that can be done as well. <laughs> but you don't tend to do that because you're surrounded by your thoughts and you have these two meetings like we have right now. Uh, so definitely see the challenges. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you guys had already started off as being a decentralized model and continue in that direction because I think it's important to be uh, able to form the right culture, uh, how that happens in this kind of a new decentralized model. Uh, it's, it's a company to company independent, but uh, something we'll figure out all, all, all of us will figure this out together. Um, so I, I know we have just a few more minutes left. <laughs> so I want to take you back along, uh, the journey that you've had so far. So if you were just to looking back at your journey, would there be something that you would do differently? Hmm. Well, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I, I think we had bet that the, technolo the technology development would be a little bit quicker. And I think this is probably a pretty common common thing. But, um, you know, it, it, when we first started off, we, we were thinking that we were going to be able to uh, develop and launch, a, you know, fairly, uh, you know, in, in probably a four-month time frame and looking back on it that was pretty unrealistic um but uh but it certainly didn't seem so at the at the time so i think uh, just better planning uh or better understanding what the um what the technology lift uh was would have helped us manage our resources a little bit better up front not that we uh not that we were you know too far off but i think there's definitely some opportunity to to improve there um, that's that's probably what comes to mind you know, as as the most uh, most important thing that we would have changed. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I think that 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 makes a ton of sense. And as again, that goes to an earlier discussion about you know you continue to learn uh, and then you reflect. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Uh, so hopefully, someone listening to this podcast will be able to grasp on that and plan better or just budget better. Uh, so those are the kind of insights that really matter. Um, it's been a pleasure, Taylor, talking to you. Uh, for all the listeners who are listening to this podcast, where can they reach out? Uh, so you can you can find me. You can reach out to me as an individual at Taylor at Farther .com, Pretty easy to find, and uh, or otherwise, uh, you know, you can check out Farther .com as uh, uh, on our website um, and you know book a book a time with an advisor. We're more than happy to to have a chat. Perfect. I would highly recommend to anyone who's listening to this to reach out to Taylor and explore farther. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks a lot, Ron. Appreciate it. Cheers. This was an exciting episode because not only we touched so many different areas around how the financial market is evolving, what are some of the challenges that still exist, how Taylor's journey is actually helping shape and cover the challenges of building a startup. He's also building something very neat, something we all can really use. So don't forget to download the app on the App Store and reach out to Taylor if you have any further questions. We'll have something more exciting coming next week and the week after that. So stay tuned. Until then, namaste.